Welcome all to a very special occasion. I'm here with my good friend and brother in arms and thought, Sean Burke, who is a painter and philosopher in his own right. Sean and I met, and we'll talk about this from different angles. Sean and I met almost four years ago on outside of Venice on a private island, thanks to an invitation from the Alpine Fellowship where talks were given surrounding the topic of ephemerality. And if I remember uh, correctly, Sean and I met within the first couple of, of hours and basically kept talking all throughout the weekend. And of course, Venice is a city built for the ephemeral and also against the ephemeral. And right now what we are facing is a situation in which we are reminded again of death. But I'm also here to talk to Sean, and Sean is here to introduce his first book on philosophy, his his sort of his first magnum opus, his concise philosophy, which is Winter and Summer, and which will be published by Halkion, which is our guild, our thinkers guild, where we group together to tear open new horizons of being. So Sean, welcome and great you're here. Hello, my friend, it's good to see you. <clears throat> you too. So yeah, um, since we met in Venice and uh, spent a good amount of time walking uh, and talking and exploring some of these ideas, I've been uh, developing more and more of a thought that I've been putting to the test and I decided to put that down into a book. But um, while that's been slow cooking over the last year or so, all so much more has come to pass, right? Which brings us to today and what we're dealing with right now, right? So I, uh, I hope you're in, in good health today. And yes, the immediacy of death is on everyone's minds, and I think that's the most important angle for philosophy right now, is in confronting death. And different schools of thought have different approaches on whether one diminishes expectations or, or um, confronts it wholeheartedly. You know, it's time that everyone, um, everyone finds some resolution for themselves yeah so yeah the, the um yeah the book is centered on the retirement of humanity actually yeah and in this age of nihilism we've got yeah. a a lot of choices to make so on one hand it's excellent to um see communities banding together to be supportive of one another but everyone is holding their breath Mm -hmm. anticipating a massive economic collapse and the pandemonium that will ensue. Just yesterday, a friend sent a message to me letting me know about, about seeing some 50 tanks rolling through during daylight. Normally, these operations, I presume, would be uh, at night. Yeah. And it's kind of a, a necessary show of force to remind everyone that, you know, the National Guard has been deployed and that the situation is largely unknown so um yeah people start thinking about what's most immediate 
and most important in their lives. And the long and short of it is really making every hour, every day really count, you know. So the sun is still shining and the birds are still singing. So it's worth keeping that in mind throughout the whole journey through nihilism. Yeah, yeah. So the the book was initially inspired by Nietzsche's notion of the re, the reduction of the human being, right? The reduction of man down to, for example, as he says, just to a wheel and an uncanny wheel work, of which he speaks in the Nachlass, the unpublished, but he talks about this also in the published works. And what, so that, that's, that's what, what inspired you to write sort of a memory, right? A, a memory yeah. of who we are. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Because we're at this juncture, like prior to um, one of the elements that could significantly impact a global population, yeah. the brief aside is that there's still the potential for um, greater calamity, catastrophe, devastation. Um, and that would, you know, whether it's, you know, earthquakes, wildfires, hurricanes, or um, mass shootings where, where folks um, can only gather now. It's a very precarious situation, um, but not to digress from uh, from the point. Yeah. Um, so Nietzsche's emphasis on that downgoing and overgoing yeah. is really critical to bear in mind at, at this point forward. Some of that's coming from um, after spending plenty of time with Arthur Schopenhauer and understanding how, you know, a species might develop and cultivate and grow to be something really magnificent and beautiful and wonderful just to uh, find itself obliviated, annihilated. And so we are very um, particular species that has a long history of making choices and we're at another juncture that it's not going to happen in, in a day or a year, but we're seeing um, an acceleration of these choices stacking up and compounding. And so that's, um, it's going to be important for each individual to define their own values for a society to grow from that. And this, and it's important to make a distinction from, uh, from Jean-Jacques Rousseau in some of these arguments because it's, it relies upon um, autonomous integrity, you know, the integrity of an individual. And that's where it kind of comes back to, um, to Nietzsche taking a hammer to all of the um, old belief systems and from which to then build. And that's why, you know, the hammer is important across a lot of different um, structures of symbols. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um yeah, so so how how are you faring over there? You know because uh, in in these times you know this it's um it's kind of precarious, right? Yeah. And and you got to watch out for, you know, how you're going to um live from day to day, week to week in very uncertain times, in so much uncertainty. So yeah. it brings me to wondering how you're doing. Well, um, I mean, look, the, the way I am, and you know me a bit, I, I've been, I, I, so I saw this popping up 
on the weirdest Twitter account sometime mid-January. Mm. I started to prepare end of January. Um, I thought that something was coming. And right now, I think you know, it, it was... It's, it is exhilarating because finally all, you know, speak with Hegel, all the contradictions that have been amassed um, are breaking apart, right? And we're living through an hyper-nervous moment right now. And but right now, this week, I'm feeling like either it's going to get really terrible or it'll blow over. This is, there's, there's no point in making any speculations, but very likely it, it very likely economically it will lead to a, some sort of a collapse scenario um and lest we forget not only the economy uh, you know because what, what we're seeing is that there are gods what i'm seeing is that there are gods but even if you, you saw that right even if they're concealed so mm. i mean there are people in america saying i'd rather die of corona than you know tanking the economy so moloch and mammon are still being prayed to even if in a concealed manner mm -hmm. and but that's not the gods that i'd like to pray to and what i'd like to push towards is towards a a human world right this is a for now this is an this is an empty phrase but it's it would be a world where we're not reduced to wheels where we actually are not workers but where we are to speak with nietzsche artists and uh, really coming into this explosion of power that is modernity and play with it in a way that we are you know fully becoming almost like mortal gods you could say right this is something i could envision is that we are mindful of mortality but still creative in a way that that's never been possible before to uh to a majority of people and what i'm seeing right now though is of also is that this the self-certainty of the subject of the modern subject that's beginning to collapse because we're no longer living in a world of a, well for now we are right it, it could just all go back to normal but i don't think it will but that the certainty of abundance and availability of everything at any moment of time that's that's dying and kind of what's important also in relation to your book is we've learned so much bullshit over the past decades and we have no proper memory like we have no memory of our ancestors we have no memory of what it means to be human yeah and um coming back to one of the, the those first points there yeah um one one of the things that uh we remember from nietzsche is how man would rather will nothing than not will at all. So you see that a lot. And actually, this, um, uh, this is a, exemplified in one of, um, one of my students who, on one of their accounts online, says, watch me die. And that's yeah. uh, profoundly unnerving, because th these are our young as a civilization. These are the young we're bringing into the world. And, this is what we've created, and it's not all on um, necessarily one ger generation because it's been a succession of um, collective decisions. Yeah. And why it's so important at this juncture to pay really close attention to um, where we've come from because right now we're seeing where we're going. And mm -hmm. um, 
that's really what the book is the walk through about. I mean, it goes from, it addresses you know, humanity at its dawn in, from prehistory through the, the different values for the different peoples that have been uh, collected, gathered together throughout in, from antiquity, you know, uh, then through dark ages, then through a sec, you know, through our age of reason and enlightenment and then disillusion. And then this, that collapse, that tremendous um, disintegration has been largely ignored, which is why um, it's critical to uh, have an ear for the dead, to listen to some of that ancient wisdom that's been picked up from, you know, from the, uh, say, from the pre-Socratics, the, the dialogue between uh, and the contrast with Heraclitus and Parmenides that helps to um, invigorate the conversation between Nietzsche and Heidegger. Yes. And, and beyond that, we start to see what it was that our predecessors, our forerunners, had seen in what they had named as divine. And, and across the different value systems, it's, there are different definitions for, for divinities and which peoples see which aspects of their lives as being some somewhat transcendent or or um or what have you so through like throughout uh, through the book we we address that yeah. um we enter into it first through aesthetics and the reason for that is because where i've uh come from as a painter has been with and I towards you know what is what is beautiful and what it is that um, invigorates one you know yeah. rising and rising again to um, to slay the dragon you know to to call um, Hemingway to mind um, and from from that vantage point where we start to define whether we find um you know beauty in the world around us and in, in whether it's in culture or in nature or whether we find it to be um in mind or transcendent if it's um you know beyond the physical world if it's in realm of metaphysical the book also then has to address um the disintegration of traditional metaphysics, which brings us back to Heidegger and Parmenides. Yeah. And which is where I, I want to have um, more and more conversations with you and in your specialty yeah. with, with Heidegger. Yeah. Um, and carrying on from there in defining where we, uh, as this, uh, to summarize the overview for the four parts of this book. Yeah. Um, we then address what different cultures uh, have defined as beautiful the relics that they've left behind mm -hmm. for um, for posterity, and each artifact is could be seen as a husk of being or some 
small dedication to what they upheld as being um, you know, some, somewhat divine. And then seeing how we can contrast that with the world that we live in now, the one that we've created, and how that um, supports or does not support a living, breathing human being. And, and well, and before we circle back to uh, one of your um, uh, latter points, yeah, we then go into see how um, our culture is leading towards a kind of retirement. So again, yeah, the concept of the retirement of humanity is central in this work, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and that has a lot to do with technological dependence. I think yes, yeah, yeah. And from there, then um, the fourth part of the book opens up into a valuation for uh, from my point of view as to what is most helpful and bountiful for a branch of our kind that chooses uh, how to live. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so circling back to a, a latter point of yours, it's flowing from my mind, but I'll... No worries, it might come back to yeah. you. Yeah, so. it will. There's a lot of important things in this. Just to be a bit facetious here, but you know, by by way of association, of course, you know, when you speak of the retirement of humanity, it's this is a non-philosophical point, but it is quite ironic that all the people in the Occidental world care about is their retirement, right? <laughs> As Nietzsche says, the last man lives longest. Uh, you can interpret that in many ways because he doesn't say much about the last man. Um, mm -hmm. You can certainly see that there's no, there's nothing. He said there's no new what for. There's many things that you touched upon, but I, you know, in terms of Heidegger, there's something because he said a traditional metaphysics. So art, for example, right? So you've mm -hmm. got someone like, so in Rilke, so Novalis, for example, the romantic writer would still think that there is a, a metaphysical realm that art gives us access to, and this is just in the 18th and 19th century. Mm -hmm. So this is, it's, it's, and then with Rilke, you're already on a different, or a hundred years later. So with Rilke, you're already in a, in, a, in a world where there is no more metaphysics. And then Heidegger, very often it's assumed that Heidegger uses metaphysics as a pejorative. He doesn't. That, that's not worthy of a thinker, right? It's not worthy of a thinker or a philosopher. And this is sometimes a bit the problem of someone like Schopenhauer to use something like metaphysics as a, as a pejorative. I don't think Heidegger does that. I think when Heidegger has to struggle through in his thinking is precisely this collapse of the metaphysical and then having to come up with ways of you know still maintaining what is it that can there be art true art and mm -hmm. what, what what would it mean for there to be art that for heidegger of course grounds a community right that grounds a, a, a as for example with the greeks that grounded their being in the world and of course, death is very important. So I think for Heidegger, it's not about getting rid of metaphysics. It's rather about having to deal with this period, with this epoch, where, as he says, and you quote this in the book, that this great, great fire is being extinguished. Mm -hmm. right? So it's now, mm -hmm. it's now, and then something you mentioned towards the end is you can almost say, like, almost sound like a breakaway civilization, but just uh, very different from what Elon Musk and other people mean by that which is we're not going to go to mars because that would literally be be the fulfillment of nihilism but it would mean to break away from 
what's <laughs> from the from, from the main currents and without opposing those main trends because you can't oppose them they're too powerful but you mm -hmm. simply withdraw which is not that simple but by withdrawing opening opening up other realms of being that's one of the things i'd like to see and you'd like to see too with the with the guilt right mm -hmm. with with because it, it gives it brings people together who, who are uh, aspiring to build something and a beautiful world not a world of ugliness that that allows for no memory that actually cuts through memory as often these hideous architectural nightmares do right they use they have cl a, cl a classical structure and then they totally destroy that classical structure which 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 is a literal cutting through and deconstructing of memory uh, and and building an ugly world but I think so Heidegger has to stride through this period of the the collapse of metaphysics. And then he speaks, however, still of the few and rare who have to you know, carry on the torch, if you like. And and because there, there, there will because meaning is a type. But one of the things I wanted to say also is that right now everything is already more meaningful, right? So <laughs> It's, it's, it's with this immediacy of death and all of a sudden something, some abyss opening up. Weirdly enough, that's a moment when, oh, actually my career is bullshit. Oh, you know, actually all of, the, I don't give a shit. You know, nothing matters except for a few things all of a sudden. And, and that speaks to um, defining what it is that we're um, aiming at. What is the purpose of, the whole development of humankind, if it is just to uh, relegate autonomous functions to um, driverless cars, drone deliveries, and and you know uploading into the cloud, and yes. and you do remind me of an important point when we in how we regard technology because it is um, and always has been a tool, and what we're seeing now is how. Um, well, we're seeing the, the tail wag the dog all across the world, and and there's um, there's a there's a gradient into this um, into uh, letting go of autonomy, and as we use these tools and rely on them more and more, so both with um, use, the use of technology and what we, what will remain in defining realms for categories of art and kitsch. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking at branches of timelines um, narrowing the, the band of definition, if that makes sense. Um, and what I mean by that is that we're all, we're all um, on this planet together and the natural disasters have been getting worse yeah. and over the years. And that's going to affect the adaptability for different folks. And that's important to pay attention to now because as you say, when as more people realize that they've been a cog in the wheel, this is another point that, again, why it's so important to pay attention to the 
those who have come before. Yeah. Nietzsche brought this to our attention that the um, being a how being a cog in the wheel is going to take over the world, and that's it in short. But he defines where that comes from and how how that sees uh, how that will be seen and why it and how one might regard that. Yeah. So with more people realizing just how meaningless a lot of the work has been and as more people start to define what it is that would be more meaningful what would bring more um whether they're after happiness or beauty or whatever the end is yeah there's more attention paid to what it is that uh we might do and that brings us back towards recognizing ourselves as a being of potential mm -hmm. and the energy that we put into that has been accruing and mm -hmm. we're seeing this um and we're seeing this cost of um time spent neglecting mm -hmm. nihilism neglecting meaningless ne ne neglecting this nothingness that has um, made the perfect conditions for this runaway consumerism, where it's okay, well, you're freaking out, and and what are you going to do for the next couple of weeks? And everyone has to go and get toilet paper because before there was ever a factory that could produce toilet paper, human beings had no means of addressing, uh, cleaning themselves, right? So that's why we have to think back towards what is necessary and yeah. th through the journey in this uh, work we, we explain why it is that what is beautiful is what is necessary is beautiful there's a correlation between wow between that great that there's something when you just said something about the meaningless work that we we've all been doing right all these these nonsense that david graber calls them bullshit jobs mm -hmm. um and 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 Joseph Pieper in in the 1940s already late 40s as a German Catholic philosopher speaks of the world of total work the totale Arbeitswelt where everyone is just a worker even the priest even the philosopher becomes a worker laborer um, and but what what I just saw for the first time when you spoke and I saw it more clearly than ever before was that. You know, we can say that these tasks are just meaningless and they're bullshit jobs, but speaking in, in the context of this conversation, I saw clearly that this meaninglessness is almost, is on the one hand, is on purpose, because it, it makes meaninglessness even more meaningless. And at the same time, it also, it is meaningless. Why? It's meaningless on purpose, right? So the meaning of this epoch is meaningless. It's, it's, it, because it cuts us off further from what has been from memory from extended memory where we could get in touch with that which has been which is a which opens up a genuine real authentic future in, in the proper sense of these words uh, and not all this fake fantasy nonsense that we usually live on well we'll have self-driving cars by 2020 uh look outside i you know um it is 2020 <laughs> but you see it, it, this meaningless work it has a has a really really twisted meaning or or so or sense to it or purpose to a very twisted purpose to it which is to cut us off ever further from from what you call what's necessary about life and of mm -hmm. course from the correlation between 
the was it the necessary and the beautiful the beautiful mm -hmm. yeah 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 it's it's a naive and dark age and no one has realized it except for these um greater minds that have put putting this out in uh written form you know and beyond that from uh further back in in our past yeah the um the, the different different elders telling children stories as to how how cycles work how um how winter yields to summer i mean like one of my favorite fragments from heraclitus is um how um how death yields to life just as uh, plenty to famine and winter summer and in a, a mode of thinking that we can just continue to um nourish a, a human species on um something it's so insubstantial uh, insubstantial or meaningless as yeah. all, all that we uh have been in the last century yeah is uh, confronting us uh very very dramatically right now yes yeah and in a lot of ways, it is in a single word, uh, <laughs> a reckoning. I mean, it's kind of dramatic in itself, but um, it is time for a, a for the eternal children to reach maturity. And that and the phrase that I that I um, include in the, in the book, and that comes from the how the um, Egyptians or how Kemet culture had regarded, uh, uh, regarded the Greeks yeah. as um, you know, kind of perpetually naive <laughs> and as the one of the cornerstones for the Occidental world. Yeah. It's important for us to realize how a culture older than theirs had regarded them. And so the whole intention of the book is to take the broadest view of our uh, of our past and future so that we can benefit from it right now and it's um in, intended for those who are willing to pay attention because it it is i mean all of the works and all of the libraries have always been there for those who pay attention yeah and you make of it what you will i mean because um any Anyone can go out and discover these things for themselves. They don't need to necessarily read it in a book. You can discover it in nature or yeah. any by other any other means, listening to stories from grandparents. But there is a sentiment that's not uh, nurtured in our global culture that that is seen in um, how we regard our elders i mean the nursing nursing homes and, and such and when you spend when you spend a lot of time there or um uh alongside deathbeds you start to really appreciate the uh wealth of wisdom that folks older than ourselves have been carrying on and uh, 
So a lot of that is gathered into the book to make it digestible because so many of the young are swept away in the tide of a technological landscape yeah. that, that too many young folk don't um, understand the, the broader world beneath their feet. Um, and so that is why I had set to this task of trying to shed some light on some of these far-reaching ideas. It's essentially for any, any of the young folk that might be paying attention because there's a, a lot that we can do to help um, cultivate a, uh, you know, uh, stronger sons and daughters, really. Well, yeah. Yeah. And let me say something great. Heidegger sometimes says to anyone who can read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes, like, sometimes he says sometimes in, in his public talks to so anyone who can hear. Mm. Uh, in, in, in just in essays, he would sometimes write to anyone who can read. And of course, Nietzsche was the thinker who yelled at people, right? Who screamed through his texts at what what's what's coming, right? It is it's and it's just and then the the worst wars break out of the twentieth century, and it still doesn't shock us back to anything. And then after the war, a war that that ends on you know nuclear bombs. Um, we just test more nuclear bombs and none of them shock anyone back into it. It just goes back to this uh, self, 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 totally complacent, self-satisfied state that of, of the herd. Yeah. Heidegger you know, yells at people also and says, like, you can't just, if you want to understand what it means to have atomic bombs, you can't just, you can't just say, oh, we're just going to use it peacefully. You have to appreciate that mm -hmm. what we're doing here is we're splitting the, the, that which is not supposed to be splittable. What does this mean? What does it mean that we think thousands of years ago that there's something that can't be split, the atomos, that it's not divisible, mm -hmm. and then, of course, it becomes all of a sudden divisible. What, is it, what are the forces that we are summoning here? And you said something that I want to stress again, you said, you know, we have to become, we have to mature. The children of the 20th century, uh, we are all children and the 20th century is coming back now to haunt us, that mm -hmm. what we've missed and what we've, what was misunderstood and all the, the, the nonsense that we've accumulated, uh, all the, the fake knowledge. And of course, then, and another, just to mention it briefly, Rilke, mm -hmm. the German poet says, an adult is someone who has become, who has cultivated a friendship with his death because death is your friend who is within you and who calls upon you. And without having cultivated a relationship with death, one will never be an adult. One will forever be a child. Yeah, that's something um, I had uh, come to discover for myself at, at uh, a young age and so in a time like this it is um it is in some sense a um 
another visit from from an old friend, old death. Um, but in, in other ways, um, uncanny in its scope and scale, and and that um, and that's right. So Heidegger, I think. <laughs> was quietly reminding everyone to spend more time in graveyards. And they couldn't understand what he was saying. Just spend more time in graveyards, you're gonna to start to figure it out. And where Nietzsche might have been yelling with so many exclamation marks, he, did, he would um, subtitle his work, uh, A Book for All and None. Um, and that, that is to uh, showcase the point that Heraclitus's point, um, you know, those who may grasp me can grasp me. Like, if you can understand what I'm saying, you got it, that, that kind of thing. Um, and from, from that, I, in, in that way, I was thinking of this work as kind of a note left behind. And in the, in first the individual sense, um, you know, before I move on, and both in the broader sense as humanity enters in another step further into the gradient towards the technological singularity. Nothing, yeah. of course, is certain, and the, this turn of events will uh, factor in substantially, um, yeah. because we will be seeing, you know, people banding together with more, uh, you know, as a, uh, as a uh, generally social creature that uh, we are, there's, um, there's going to be a whole lot of reconciliation with our dependence on technology. And so, uh, so you know, that is that's central central to the work. Um, there's there's a couple of other things that uh, I was going to respond to, but we'll come back to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it had to do. I think uh, it was relating to. Well, maybe. Okay, we'll get we'll get to that one later. Yeah. Mortality, mm -hmm. and the idea of longevity and yeah. that of the last man mm -hmm. um, is really distinctly yearned for by the majority of, of people. And, yeah. and I think it's a na naive and young view um, that, that we saw in, uh, in Venice at the fellowship with presentation of, um, of our friend giving a presentation on on living longer and and choosing as i like to put it a good time to unsubscribe from life right yeah. if you've got yeah. just a kind of an endless stream of how long you can live and how much you can watch how much you can yeah. subscribe to yes but that's it exactly yeah yeah when you know when would you choose then to uh to go offline because that's going to be yeah. analogous with death. And, yes. and we see this when yes. someone loses a phone, yeah. they go dark there. Yeah. And this is one of these points that, that I, right. yeah. that I like in the book is yeah. 
um, that is the window into the true world now. And we yeah. all are participating in that uh, for the most part. I mean, we're talking about how, you know, the first world probably trying to get uh, phones and screens into the hands of primitives and savages, and, you know, who don't know any better than just, um, you know, killing game and starting a fire. Like, no, 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 you need a screen to record this so that, you know, so that super intelligence can uh, document the rise and fall of, of, a, of a creature. And, but we have the ability to change the, the course of our, um, <laughs> change the course of, of our future. Yeah. And, and to me, it is, it, it's very, it's very diminished from the capabilities that we were immersed in only 10,000 years ago, not to mention 250,000 years ago. And if you, you know, would you believe that, that a, uh, <laughs> that a savage in, in a Northern tundra could, could uh, create a tool sharper than the scalpels that brain surgeons use today. Well, now that, uh, well, that brain surgeons used yesterday because now it's, it's um, mechanized. Yes. So what, what I'm driving at is essentially, again, our own um, designed obsolescence in the larger view. And yes. within that, each individual has a choice as to how much of that one wants to yeah. participate in. And throughout you know, the last couple centuries of philosophy, there have been some really illuminating ideas as to the potential of man, which brings um, another, another, a, um, some of Heidegger to mind, which um, we are too soon for being. The, um, the poem, no, 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 we are, <laughs> let me, let me, let me remember this. It's, um, yeah, we are too late for the gods and too soon for being, um, the poetry of man has just begun. It's, yeah, it's roughly Something along like those that. lines. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. But, it, it, but yeah. Transition. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and while there have you know, been very high flung hopes for the limitless potential of the higher man that would one day be the precursor to an eventual overman. Yeah. It's, it's something that, you know, Nietzsche would, had said, you know, the soil is still good for, uh, for that to grow from, but the time is coming that that soil will no longer be rich enough in nutriment to be something that um yeah something greater than ourselves can can arise and and when we when we say greater than ourselves it really refers to oh I, overcoming humanity which is there's so many different ways that one could misinterpret that or interpret a thousand different ways to unpack that um but what it means to me and what's important to recognize yeah. is that we need to overcome the thing that created the world where we're obsolete. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we might all find different ways about 
going about that. And my contribution to um, figuring that out is, you know, unfolds in, in the, in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And here's a, f a few things that come to mind. I, I've recently read again, Plato's Critias dialogue, the Critias, as we say in German, Critias. Uh, and <laughs> he describes there the, the battle, the battle between Atlantis and Athens and how Athens became how Athens became Athens, right? That's mm -hmm. the most important question. So an Athenian, interesting. And he says something, because it has much to do with your book, with memory. He says that, and this has to do with leisure, right? With muse, otium, with skole, in, in, or idleness, as I'd like to translate it, in, in English, with leisure. Um, and as I'm putting together this course on leisure with dignity, idleness with dignity, I'm reading Critias again. What am I seeing? I see that Atlantis sings because their harbor never stands still. And Plato describes it as crazed and confused and full of unrest. And their sense was directed towards lack. So they begin from lack and that lack can never be fulfilled. So their harbor is open 24 seven. And what I'm seeing with, uh, with Athens is what he's describing about Athens is that the Athenians had no Mythologia. He uses the word mythologia, mythology. They had no mythology. They had no knowledge or interest in their ancestors because they focused their sense, their news, towards lack. And this focusing towards you know the basic needs of life, which it is exactly the same discourse that we're in. We've got to you know get the economy going, and and then we've got all. The weird thing about the economy is, or anything of this, is that there are no basic needs that can be met. Once you try to meet basic needs, you're creating more needs and more wants and more desires. Mm -hmm. It just keeps on desiring more. Mm -hmm. That's, there's an appetitus, right? An, an, an appetite for experience, an appetite for more and more and more. But once the Athenian... The folly of our kind. Yes, once the Athenians are capable of, of simply directing their sense towards their news, towards fullness and abundance, you could perhaps you would say beauty, then that's, where, that's when skole, leisure, arrives in the polis and they, will, they begin to have time for mythology and for knowledge of their ancestors. And here's something on Heidegger too. Because Heidegger is just someone who tries to remind us of what we are forgetting, right? The forgetting of being is his topic. What does being mean? Being is not some super sensual entity, not some substance. Being is, and this is the oldest wisdom that you find in Plato and even in Aristotle, because Aristotle says it, toti en einai, that which was, being. Being is the old, that which was, that which always has been. That which has been, that's, being means the old, das alte. And das alte always already comes towards us from the so-called past. But we don't do this. We look back at the past and, you know, and oh, this is very interesting. But we're not connected to it. Mm -hmm. And this complete disconnect, this being cut off from it, that's what people call meaning crisis. That's what people call nihilism. That's it. And yeah, it's, it's a profound absence that uh, yeah. the, the death and absence of, of meaning itself. Yeah. And 
Yeah, it's a, a fascinating contrast between Atlantis and Athens, you know, and once um, Athens gets rolling and established, it, it becomes its own very distinct culture as a, um, as kind of a, a garden for a lot of the, uh, the Western world, as it is self, itself becomes an amalgamation of, uh, of tribes. Yes. And, uh. and returning to actually an, an earlier point with relating to yeah. Rilke is a contrast between like the classical and romantic uh, points of view. And so in, um, and that could be parsed in a number of different ways, but the, a difference between um, Athenians and, and Spartans is, you know, still under a category of what we call Greek and what we put under a heading of classical and what dries out in academia of just, well, that was, you know, that was distant and remote past and we've progressed and we've evolved, but those, both of those words are um, dangerously misleading and, and it, the appetite for more and more and more, which has been part of the uh, core dilemma for humanity is something that is exacerbated after the death of God. And that, that comes after yep. the, um, the slaughter of pantheons of gods <laughs> and those and you see, because all these things start to become um stultified as uh as old arcane nonsense yeah and so that's where like if the young don't understand the old they're like never mind you, your gods what have they ever done for me there's this new one and and it is the some of everything that we have always been seeking and that worked for a while and it is um in deeply tragic after that um after the death of divinity that humanity has to face that um that <laughs> humanity faces that hole in its being and has to reconcile that it is at its own by its own hand right and we haven't um we haven't addressed our um our condition in 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 that state and um and for that we can't say that we know ourselves and it's a it's actually the jumping off point of, of the book where we um, pick up from Nietzsche and saying that um, we still do not know ourselves. Yeah. And that's because of the lack of memory. And you know, we ha and we've continued to, um, to champion an enlightenment and reason that brings so much prosperity and wealth to more things, to more people, to eat more and, and just, consume more and watch more and listen to more and tell me and tell me more about what you thought about the food that you ordered from the thing and they brought it to you like it's yeah, it's, it's all about the food always i'm not sure why. oh but well, it's, 
It's like Leibniz's monad, right? That's just eternally has an appetite <laughs> for, for perception. And then mm. you get to Guns N' Roses and it, it's already appetite for destruction. <laughs> and now, yeah. <laughs> and, now it's, and now it's raining blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but because um, it's actually the, the blood of our ancient, most ancient gods that floods the world. And it, it's uh, um, profoundly terrible that not only have we um, whitewashed the world over yeah. our, uh, the blood of, of our eldest gods, but we uh, persist in championing all the things that got us to, into this mess in the first place. And it was from one revolution in the story of civilization, one revolution to another, where we continue to double down on the things that uh, bring us to where we are today. And um, none of this is in a vacuum, and we all are um, born into it to an extent. But what it is that we spend our time paying attention to and um, rediscovering and relearning matters a great deal more now than it ever has because the sum of knowledge from our most distant history till now has never been you know more illuminating you know we've um, never had access to um to more knowledge from more uh dead beings than we do now and what do we do with it you know we you can call an uber and go and get a thing and like a, a sugar drink and eat a, a salty something or other and I, and which you know gradually starts bringing a uh the class of, of elites to is it, um, cultivate their own private farms for catering that bringing their their staff kitchens to <laughs> feed feed a very <laughs> select group and it's um and that should never have been elevated and rarefied in the first place because that was our most immediate integration with like earth and sea and sky. And, and I, so I, in over the years, become more and more of a, of a, a champion for all that's been forgotten. And this flies in the face of, you know, continually of, of, um, notions of progress and the question whenever whenever that comes up from in conversation with some of some younger students it would be yeah. towards um all right, well where, where's this going because if you throw half the species under the bus what what are you left with because this it, it's going to entail uh autonomous integrity it's going to uh, necessitate responsibility and it's going to take teamwork um for uh for some of us to reach one step further towards a greater potential than than um than the world our kind has made so far mm -hmm. and there's still a and which is like the the um the overall message with the book is um and and during the cool wind of, of winter towards the sweetness of summer and it and we are towards that, but we have to learn to be able to endure. And how we endure is um, with memory. 
Yes, without it, uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to say, when you said Athens as a garden, mm -hmm. that ignited a thought I had not had before. That this the wealth of Athens, right? There's abundance of meaning still echoes within us. I mean, mm -hmm. we still have to read. I mean, so I'm, I I don't think that philosophy is footnotes to Plato. I think that's a ridiculous understanding of philosophy. Uh, because that that's I'm not gonna we've got into it now, but when Athens, you know, that's an image, but Athens as a garden, what they the seeds they planted back then from this abundance, those are the, the that that's what we can that's what still can spark meaning today. And such a garden it is that we should aspire to build, not becoming footnotes, which is, you know, you see kind of this twisted res response to this, but no, it's, it's exactly the opposite. There's a task that comes with memory and with reading, for example, in the proper sense. And that mm -hmm. task is to take on what's been thought and carry on this thought into our epoch without retiring us. Because, you know, you can, you can play with that word, retiring us. <laughs> You know, retiring us because we're tired of being human. And that's what Nietzsche says also, is that there is this tiredness, right? This downtrodden tiredness of, that of, of not just the fall of the siècle, not just the end of the century, but the end of humanity that's almost been, that's, that's, that's announcing itself and that some people are, of course, welcoming. Mm -hmm. and, and, and now we're, we're being pushed back into our senses mm -hmm. and very quickly have to realize what I've seen this week, just this is purely anecdotal, um, is, is many people trying to come to their senses this week and trying to um, you know, make sense of the world as if, as if it just could go on as it was. Uh -huh. before. We have not just realized for a second, I mean, India is in lockdown, right? That's 1.3 billion people. Yeah. Um, the, the trauma this will cause, mm -hmm. the, the trauma this is already causing to a country like Italy is not to be underestimated. And also there's something, you know, to this very utilitarian Anglo-American Anglo approach to everything. Um, oh, they're, but they're counting people who don't die off Corona. They're counting people who had Corona and then die. Yes, but they still, you know, this is the utilitarian way of thinking, right? There's instrumental mm -hmm. rationality, etc. Uh, but but no, this they Italy to some degree still holds up their elderly quite quite highly. But so the, the Athens as a garden that that's mm. a almost like a slogan. That's a, a a light motif. I shall remember. I shall really take to heart. Ah, and, the, he, and and there's um, there's a lot to explore with yeah. that. And so there's two two main things. One um, yeah, from from the last. Um, and one is yeah that that tiredness is something that um, you know Nietzsche understood very very deeply his his final collapse over that beaten horse it was um, full of pathos when he says I understand you a, yeah. a, a beaten draft horse and and Nietzsche who ab abhors pity. Um, collapses in in understanding the suffering of, of that draft horse and um, 
And that is in itself one of the most uh, profound exits of yeah. any of the philosophers that, um, that I've uh, read about or spent time with. But the other, um, the other thing to address that there's a whole world to un unpack with um, Athens and the garden is um, it's multivalent because there, there's, there are angles in, um, in psychology where some of these aspects of walled gardens and culture within and the unknown without are central to understanding how it is that we, how we work together as a, as a, as a people in history had when the world was um, vast and unknown and you'd sail off the edge versus, versus now when we had to figure out what that means on a larger scale. But, the, but Athens in particular as a case of a walled garden is important to remember for what they held at its center, the Acropolis, the temple to Athena. Yeah. And, and she is um, emblematic of pagan wisdom. And there are, there's so much to explore with um, our ancient cultures that every different facet, facet illuminates another corner of their world. And yeah. it's the further back it is in history, the, the um, more revealing it becomes. And this brings us to um, a, a dualism that, um, that Nietzsche had cultivated first, like fa fairly early on and uh, with some very tentative ground in the birth of tragedy, the, the dualism of uh, Apollo and Dionysus, but he, that itself had been, had seeded and sprouted throughout his work and um, produced <laughs> the fruit towards the end of his entire um, life as being the last philosopher, uh, the last disciple of the philosopher Dionysus. And what that means is, um, is a will to life and living and health and that com coming back then to the point about, you know, it's time for people to uh, wake up and make sense of what it is that they're doing with their lives. And that's Dionysian. That's the dying and rising God and continually. And, and every different culture has its iteration that relates to um, a dying and rising God emblematic of the sun. It's downgoing, it's traveling into the earth, into the depth of caves throughout winter and in summer, spending a whole lot of time shining its um, bright light across, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. across the world. And that uh, is, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the core ideas that the book means to convey while still bringing a lot of uh, uh, nuances that's, yeah. that have otherwise been lost mm -hmm. um, to, uh, to remembrance. Yeah. I mean, so I've read the book, obviously, right? Because um, I've edited it, but it's, 
what, what the book does is like, it is a, a meditation, I find. It's like reading a, a meditation. It gets you in a certain, um, a certain mode of, of pondering things and uses different entrances, of course. But also there's something in, in Nietzsche I wanted to mention. Nietzsche begins to speak towards the end of the halcyonic tone, the tone mm. of the, the cry. And he calls, you know, we are halcyonia. We Halcyonians, we Halcyonians. The, the reason I call the guild, the Halcyon guild, first of all, why is it a guild? So, which in your book will be the first publication of the, of, the, of the guild. Why is it a guild? Because we're at a point where guilds were the origin of universities. And I'm trying to bring together people who want to outside the institutions because these institutions have failed to produce elites who could rule properly and respond to crisis properly. Mm -hmm. So it's time to have these independent projects, of which there are many at this point, to bring together groups of people who would like to initiate and ignite another world, build, dwell, think, as Heidegger says. And the Halkion, Nietzsche speaks of the Halkionic tone. So who's the, what's the, what's the Halkion bird? The, the Halkion bird breeds in a period of two weeks during solstice, during winter. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a tiny bird. The sea is still just for that time. The nest is actually on the still sea knowing that the tempest in January will return, the storms will return, the tempests of existence, if you want to speak poetically, facing that horror, knowing that by the law of the eternal recurrence of the same, those horrors will already have been overcome. This bird gives birth to new life, births a new world, to speak very you know, flowerly now. And... Yeah, but, the, but that, that's the tone that Nietzsche begins to hear, and he speaks of a halcyonic self-sufficiency, mm -hmm. which, which is classical. It's ultimately being a classical human being because a classical human being is at once Apollinian and Dionysian. Yeah. While, yes. And yeah, that, um, that self-reliance that is, is espoused you know, carries on with... Um, with carries on with Emerson, who influences uh, yeah. Thoreau and Muir, which is for a whole other um, audience to get on board with the thoughts that brought yeah. them towards that frame of view. Um, but more, um, more, more than that, there's um, oh, what was the other one? Yeah. No, it was, wasn't of the house, you know, but it was about, oh, um, self-reliance yeah. found in, um, in Homer, mm -hmm. the Odyssey, Odysseus as a kind of a proto-philosophy for the autarkic man is another piece of forgotten lore it's just myth it's story and what you know what does it have to do with now but um his 
the most uh, self-sufficient, uh, you know, hero in in the in the epics, and his his story, Nostos, is that of, of homecoming, and that is really important for um, for the in the, for the fourth part of, of this book in addressing where do we go from here after getting through nihilism because it's going to require a revaluation and it's going to require a rebirth which brings us to back around to to the uh Halkion bird and it comes at a perfect time or at least I mean, there's no other time than yeah um that it could have happened and that's important to bear in mind as to when you come to the thoughts that you do and paying attention as to um you know uh where that may lead in, with the choices that you make. And that has everything to do with uh, the energy we expend with being in what we choose in, in becoming and you know, ultimately what it is that we, uh, it ultimately, ultimately what we do with when we take up that hammer yeah. and, and it is driven with will because you can taking up that same hammer, a nihilist is going to de deconstruct and destroy everything. And thank you for that. This is the world we live in now. What are we going to do with that hammer now? Yeah. And that's, um, and, and, and different from, and taking a firm position in contrast to so this is the work is in no way, any kind of, um, mandate of, any kind it's it's you know uh, one man figuring that out to maybe help others along uh, along their their way as well and um, so you know, yeah there's uh, there's a there's yeah there's so much more that I want to get into yeah you want to get into yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what do you said is it's important just maybe en passant when you said something you know it's this is the time it's it's time that this tells us something about time is this sight uh it's time is to say this is an there's already there's an origin here there's a source but mm -hmm. time now begins right time isn't just this flowing now state that, we, that that's how we live right this mm -hmm. is the year 2020 next year will be better by default because it will have added another, another year to, to the linear uh uh, progress towards an ever brighter future. Mm -hmm. Time arises. Right? Proper time is not something that passes, but it arises, and it arises in those moments when something begins to really shine and matter. So it is. It's time. Um, what else did you want to get into? Oh well. Um, well, briefly, that um, chess reference opens up an, another aspect of time in regarding our long history and, and long long future it's not it, it's not linear in in any way um but in the way of a of an analogy with chess we have are seeing a um in the most uh foolish gambit of, of all time in um you know pursuing our our 
obsolescence with continued reliance on technology. Again, it's a wonderful tool, uh, but it has to remain a tool if we are to um, continue. And, and the gradient is hard to see, hard to define because it has, it's pretty thoroughly integrated. Um, but that, um, that self-isolation that everyone is encouraged to find right now is yeah. opening up a lot of, um, a lot of thoughts and feelings for people near and far because everyone has to deal with the, you know, how useful or useless the, the work that they've been doing is. They have to address, um, that self and that shadow that perhaps they have neglected for too long and that in itself is the um the requisite condition from which an individual might uh cultivate their own values that would then lead to a um you know new groupings or associations new pockets of peoples with similar values because the mass market consumer value system that um yeah that the world is subscribing to is um so terribly empty and so awfully misguided that people are going to slowly start to realize that as they spend more time in solitude and who could not be more excited for uh, one of seven solitudes uh, when they, uh, you know, spend time in some of these realms of thought, yeah. Yeah. exploring different timelines, considering the different um, possibilities and immersing oneself further and further into all the things that have been forgotten or the things that get drowned out mm. in the din of, uh, yeah. of living. Yeah. And that kind of brings us kind of back around towards um, some of Heidegger's influence on, on some of the stillness just outside the cabin. Yeah, yeah stillness. Yeah. Oh, the, but maybe one of the things I wanted to respond to Mm -hmm. uh, from a little bit ago, it was just that I was glad that in reading, uh, reviewing, editing the work that you had uh, found it to be a meditation because I, I'm glad that that comes across, the, the silence and stillness mm -hmm. that um, is necessary for one to resolve all of the, or not necessarily resolve, but address all of these different questions yeah. is hard won. And if one can convey some of that, you know, across in a work, then that's uh, fulfilling in itself. But yeah, yeah, I it's st stillness is the origin, right? It's it's not well, it's it's not nothing, and it's it's where where meaning arises is in this stillness. And I would like to ask you though, I mean, maybe briefly what I'm seeing happening also is I made a couple of, I made actually a lot of videos. One of the things is 
that I thought we could see is the collapse of gestell, of the collapse of inframing, which means of this artificial framework, let's just translate this into a totally non-Heideggerian way of thinking about this. You know, the, the global shop, shopping mall that presents us with everything and absolutely nothing actually. Um, and that where everything is perfectly available, but no longer perhaps this is the case. Um, and, and maybe that's sort of indicating a gestell, but there might also be now a titanic battle almost of and framing against another dimension of being where gestell or in framing technology might very well win because what we're seeing also is increased measures of total surveillance of people, people being locked in at home. On the one hand, yes, it can trigger this necessary solitude and stillness in order to begin to read and meditate and think, but it can also just mean that this is where in framing wants you, right? This is, is in your pod, mm-hmm. watching Netflix, ordering shit from Amazon and watching us idiots on, on YouTube or something. And uh, What's up, everybody. Yay. Um, <laughs> Because that's one of one of the dangers I see, and I mean, you know, this is what Hölderlin says: where there is danger, there's the saving grace also. But that means you have to read this in both ways. Where there is the saving grace, there is also danger. Always, you cannot have one without the other. So when when you know when you when one engages in YouTube videos and podcasts and philosophies, of course, the danger is that all you do is you feed the machine. And there's a beautiful short story, which is the machine stops and made a video about this, which is so prescient. It's from 1909, written by a British writer. Uh, or was, I think he was Irish or something. Let's just say off the aisles. So I don't get, I don't get slaughtered for anyone. If I, you know, maybe he was English, maybe he was Welsh, whatever he was. Ian Foster uh, from 1909, he describes people living under the earth in little pots where all they do is talk to each other over what we would call Zoom or Skype. And they, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's oh. crazy. It's, yeah. It's mad. it's mad when you read it and all they talk about is interesting ideas, right, of the past. Mm-hmm. I tried to point out in that video is that, and this is also something that, that you're, you're arguing in the book and that you're trying to say now, is you know, it's, it, there's a difference between having proper access to memory and that delivering that memory over to us today or simply accessing information of the past, right? Where we're very interested, very interested in uh, Australia, uh, music in the Aboriginal period in Australia or something like that, which is completely, Mm -hmm. this can give rise to meaning, but very Mm -hmm. often, because we have all of these informational talks about everything. But it, that's just data. It's just data. And data is not, this is what Plato says in the Phaedros, right? Is that when you begin to write, that's when you begin to lose memory. That's when you begin to lose this extended sense of memory. Uh, and all you have left with is this, he speaks of hypo, hypo, oh, what's the word, the Greek? It's hypo, I think. Hypo, was. Anything, sorry. Uh, so it, it, it's a, it's already sort of a, 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 um, 
a, a sense of memory that's no longer grounded. It's already hypo, right? It's already hyper. It's hyper memory. It's already a part of the what we would now call hyper modernity of hyper reality. Mm -hmm. You lose this authentic connection to uh, deliverance and tradition and and origin and history. So, one of the reasons to be ever grateful for the fragments that remain from Heraclitus, he was one who who espoused the value of oral tradition. In in the book, uh, we do address. Um, that transition from oral to written tradition and how pivotal that is. Um, for um, a whole variety of different cultural songs to be condensed under, um, under the category of Homer becomes its own thing. And then it, then it, that text itself can get translated, you know, year and year after year, which starts to become a game of telephone because new translators will co continue to modernize it and update it and make it relevant to yes. and twist and twist the whole story around, and they they um, mutilate the meaning, which is uh, tragic in itself because it's the disrespect for a culture that came and went is um, kind of shoehorned into the desires of another culture in another century. Um, and then when it comes to um, like Socrates and Plato, I mean, the getting written down, things get solidified and maybe some meanings get, uh, do fall away. But it starts to uh, it starts to record, and that's one of the first steps towards making a distinction between recording and experiencing. Always one of the funny things between set like as we set up to, oh, we're we're going to record this conversation. Yeah, let's let's see how this goes because it's in a tension with experiencing as we might naturally do in conversation walking beneath the stars yeah and <laughs> and so the distinction between recording and experiencing has you know the issue was raised with um the pre-socratics and the issue you know we've returned to it at a time when um virtual stories are rampant cataloging every thing that happens in your life is yes. yeah. uh, pervasive because you know there, of course there's a value to um to keepsakes and and the like but how this um conflicts with experiences that cannot be captured is not something that we yeah. have altogether resolved yeah. and in that same uh, territory of thought. Uh, another another culture's um, tradition of stories brings to mind a solitude of of um, of a god of 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 death and magic, the god of the wind, whose one of his older names was Thunder before it was the name of his son. And so the all-father 
hanging on the world's tree. We spent nine days and nine nights. And imagine just for a moment, if you yourself were to suspend yourself for a duration of time yeah. of, of nine days and nine nights, like you'd go through, okay, like, you know, the short attention span of like, okay, this is bored. Okay. I'm, this, I don't you know what's next. Okay, can I get down now? What's going on? Like, you know, maybe a day goes by and you get hungry. Two days go by and you get, get thirsty, but it's going to be another, another seven days. And, um, and before anything's going to change. So where is it that the mind's going to go? And what is it that you're going to explore in the realm of thought? Um, and what is it that you're going to come back with? Because it's after that transcendent journey that he discovers the, the runes on the uh, roots of the world tree. And, um, and not to be, uh, to brush away the mysticism of that. There's something important philosophically to take away from that because they are fragments of, um, of wisdom for a people adapted to a particular uh, uh, climate. And part of that's lost in its recording. Part of it becomes, um, it becomes character and then caricature and then it, the uh, mm -hmm. theater of it all becomes so absurd. Yeah. And we find ourselves now in um, such a theater that, you know, yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, for all of the foresight that Orwell might have, might have panned, he couldn't have seen it get so absurd. I mean, Camus couldn't have realized just to the degree of how absurd. Plato couldn't have realized how much people, I mean, like he, you know, he addresses you know, how, you know, coming back from outside of the cave, they wouldn't believe you and they would kill you for oh, so much heresy. But um, it's, it's a lot to take in considering how, um, how, clamorous the population is becoming in light of the pandemic because we're forced into the solitude forced into addressing who we are as um you know to confront oneself to yeah. identify what that means and what one's purpose is yeah at the same time as conflicting with a and so that that interior space you know, stay home. You're in that interior space. Yeah. And how much one wants to get outside to experience more of the theater, as in the the whole virtual world. You can't go out and collect experiences when you're when you're staying in. in yes. Home. Yeah. And, and you can't, you know, um, you know, continue to, uh, you know, can't continue to live in that manner. That is. Um, that looks at the vacant, vacuous, empty. Yes, but but also that also considers the Earth as a a, a planetary uh, a planetary playground or like a like a fun fair, you know, like Disneyland. Mm -hmm. Anywhere you go, there's in Edinburgh, which once was called the Athens of the North, where David Hume's grave is decaying. And if it weren't for my good friend Dr. David Ashton who paid him for he, out of his own pocket, rather mentioning it to anyone, paid for a gate for David Hume's mausoleum. So it would be protected against people who took drugs 
and got drunk in the mausoleum, it would have been totally destroyed by now. So zero regard for the people who made, for the men who made Edinburgh great and the Athens of the North. Today, Athens is a, a place for Harry Potter shops and of course, <laughs> The most Instagrammable street of the world apparently was in this pre pre corona world was in Edinburgh. It was so overrun by people that mm. the people who actually lived there, who dwell there as mortals, got wanted to shut down the whole street because they couldn't take it anymore. People were queuing up to take the perfect Instagrammable picture, and of course, so you know the entire planet had been turned into a, into a zoo, into a theater. And it's, 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 it's ridiculous to, to, to just look at this now. And mm. I, but I, I don't want to dwell on this too much because it, 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 one, one could almost become tomorrowizing. Uh, and I, don't, mm. I really don't want to do that either because it's, it's, it is, you, must, you must just let that theater roll on on its own accord. And it has come to a very abrupt end, mm -hmm. um, which makes me laugh <laughs> yeah, you do have to smile at it all yes i am smiling um but not even you know, i'm just smiling because it kind of it's it's calming to see that this is now over and mm -hmm. then what we've seen also for example in philosophy is this kind of you know going back so all of a sudden analytical philosophy turned to history right so in, in, but instead of a proper geschichte of philosophy they, they they're not writing proper histories what, what they're doing very often is to just look at spinoza and say is spinoza this kind of ism or is he more that kind of ism oh. yeah, yeah and that's exactly yeah. this is exactly right this kind of uh, embarrassed and embarrassing com complete being cut off from this proper sense of profound history and trajectory Right, this is that's completely cut off. It's already we are in the machine, in our pots underneath the earth, and looking at historical data that we find interesting, and then, then we apply certain uh, uh, frameworks, like isms, to that, and, and then in, in our procrustis beds, right? And if those oh, is yeah. if if the theory, the, the so-called theory, doesn't live up to the model or the ism, then the theory must be wrong. And, but it's good because you can produce a completely meaningless paper uh, on this. But here's the trick, and this is something one cannot learn just so. This is something one really has to experience and then try out, and there won't be many who can do it. Goethe had a beautiful verb, which is in German, anverwandeln. And there is no English translation. So anverwandeln means to transform. And anverwandeln, you could say, is to appropriate something and then to transform while maintaining the essence of what's being appropriated, but delivering over this essence into the epoch today. That's, that's, that's this sense of history that, that I think we're trying to explicate or trying to get to, right? Is yeah. that we are, we are appropriating, but not, but not in the way that we, you know, we, we criticize it. Oh, I think, Plato is wrong to, to say this. No, Plato isn't wrong, right? Not, not because he's uh, the authority. No, Plato just, that's just not how philosophy in, in this level works, right? It's just Plato sees something. He has to, like, this is another thing. Plato sees the idea, literally. He sees the idea. Just like Hegel, I mean, look at the painting of Hegel, the one painting that we all know, right? 
I mean, look, look at those eyes. That man has seen, uh, had seen the absolute and spirit, just like Nietzsche sees the will to power and sees the possibility of the overman, of the bridge and of the Zarathustra, just like Heidegger sees being. Heidegger is, is at pains to tell his modern day readers that, no, 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 this is not a metaphor. The being is flashing. Read Heraclitus. And he says, Heraclitus is standing right behind me. And this is, this is the historical level that some thinkers are on. Like Heraclitus is right behind him. This is why Heidegger's writings are so powerful. It's because they speak out of this deep sense of history and memory. This, and, and they carry on this torch. That's why it's powerful. That's why everyone, many others aren't, because they don't have this force, because they, they're not tapping into, they can't tap into what Heidegger says, by the way, on the first page of Being in Time, Gigantomachia Peritesusias, the gigantic battle for being. And we are right now living through once, and we, we always are. We all, that's the tragedy that the, the, the divine comedy in which we are at stake is that there's always a battle between men and gods and between gods and, of course, also between the earth and the sky and sometimes they're in equilibrium and sometimes they aren't. And right mm -hmm. now there's a battle, an, a prime, as Her to come back to Heraclitus, Heraclitus says that war is the father of everything. Polymos panton pater estin, the king of all, Basileus panton. This war, this primordial war is breaking out. That's what we're living through. And that, that's a rearranging of everything right now. Mm -hmm. That rearranging, recombination, that also then speaks to that uh, continual, perpetual metamorphosis, the change that uh, is compacted into the idea of that ever-living fire, right? And and one of the, and the difficult thing um, for all philosophers is uh, trying to convey some of these thoughts through language and the use of, of uh, metaphor, symbol, Heraclitus' ever-living fire to speak towards that continual change and, um, and the perpetuity of becoming is something that can escape as just a platitude himself. Yeah, okay, fire is hard, yeah, it's yeah. burning and it changes and whatever. But the more that one spends time dwelling on these things, again, coming back to this as, um, you know, in the category of a, of a meditation, there's a, a lot to glean you know, by, by the light, the fire. And to remember that we are, uh, we are a creature that can call it forward is something, um, you know, deeply invigorating on all levels from, you know, um, you know, mind, body, soul. I mean, all of it, and, you know, philosophically speaking, mythologically, practically, all of, in every different way. There's, um, there are aspects of these things that help a being thrive that we forget about when we can um, call some of its simulacra to hand on drone wings. 
you know. So there's um, no, there's there's so much there's so much to explore with um, with all of it that uh, that <laughs> it then becomes a task towards um, parsing it out, figuring out how much of it you're going to to include in in a written work and to yeah. what degree one can make um, oneself understandable. Um, so that yeah. yeah, sorry, go. No, 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 that was it. What's it? Riff on this. What's what's the world you envision? Hmm. <clears throat> well, the world is going to feel the ramifications of this pandemic for some time, and it'll bring um, some positive change in as people in smaller numbers band together but the overall reliance on um on systems to coordinate it all is going to i think double down so there's pandora's jar is broken open and there's and there's no no getting that uh, all that was loosed back into the container, but hope remains stuck on the, on the lip of the jar. And um, what? How different um, uh, historians and photographers interpret that has uh, a number of different ways that unfolds. But um, to to me, the world is going to be continuing on um, on its reliance and its structures and its systems and algorithms. And we'll, though I think we'll reassess which are most important and immediate in terms of um, large disasters. Uh, a, a brief aside is bearing in mind that um, you know, over over the next century, yeah. there's going to be a a likely a, a winnowing of, of a population, and you know, indiscriminate across the board. Um, and the you know the rate of of um, propagation is not going to continue. And while I have never thought that there was um a utopia for for all i had started to pay more attention towards um towards looking after one's own and the importance of of community and that's another one of the lessons from like um from those, those ancestors so look is um clan band and tribe and that is going to make it a lot more immediate how one chooses to spend their time, on which skills they um, put the time and energy into developing, yeah. and and to what purpose? Because once you have, um, once 
once a you know small small community gets all the different um, working components for you know between uh, hunting and farming and all of that, what are you going to do with your time as we get to you know like cultivating the you know the Athenian garden right and so I am you know somewhat uh, somewhat reluctant on on any you know sweeping salvation but I'm very optimistic about the resilience and um, adaptability of of individual human beings to continue to become what they've always been you know it's it's a i mean and it's so um it it does not suffice to say that it's that these are strange times but it's really kind of like human history is coming to another juncture for for the antiquarian to write this down in the history book i said well this is what happened and this is then then this is what happened after that yeah but it's gonna it's gonna be one of these junctures where um we're gonna be choosing on both you know individual levels community levels you know everything from counties you know state federal global and um and this all this is, is exemplified so this is actually you know this is um exemplified in our our situation now with the pandemic because you know we see you know people will um they will step over their uh you know someone else's grandmother to get their toilet paper but then they might share that toilet paper with uh, you know some people that they know and it's characteristic of um you know a creature with a, a sense for uh, <laughs> of, of that survival instinct, but senses are going to be more important. One of the most important um, changes between those who um, are more technologically inclined and those a bit more um, those who nurtured without that. Um, so the in expanding on how you know these strange times are um characteristic of the like broader history i'm i'm hearing about lines to um stock up on ammunition and um you know firearms out of stock and people having an optimistic predisposition but a wary eye on the like a looming catastrophe mm -hmm. and when um when things get rough everyone will have to re uh, reconcile with who it is that they are and the choices that they make in um in meeting death and that's you know where we like, come back around with um the great use of philosophy think about that think ahead on this stuff learn learn like um 
dig deeper into the past, con confront what it is that you're thinking about in the future, because there is a there's such a such a deep history that it would surprise a lot of people that so many of their thoughts have already been thought. Yeah, you know, Goethe, Goethe says, all that's intelligent has already been thought. It only remains to be thought again. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, <laughs> yeah, you know, which is, oh, that's, yeah, that's absurd. Yeah, it's, uh, that's, uh, yeah, if it's in there. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. yeah um, and how uh, how are you seeing this um, this juncture changing the world? I'm not going to speculate, but we've always been at at a juncture. This mm. Nietzsche speaks of a bow and the arrow in the bow that's under tremendous tension, and Rilke speaks of that in his first elegy. So he, that's a reference to Nietzsche probably, but it's it's more than just a reference to Nietzsche out of some intellectual fancy. It's it's he sees the same thing, and so so does Heidegger. And of course, the the fantasies of the late twentieth century they are coming abruptly to an end, I think. And what I think I can say philosophically found is that the self-certainty of subjectivity, which is the history and trajectory of modernity, that's, I think that is collapsing. And that will, that will give birth to new, well, to a new human being, to another human being, but we don't know yet what and why or what. So that's the that's the juncture that we're on, but that's the juncture we've we've always been on, right? Like who is the human being? That that's always been, and that's right. As I said before, the, this battle between being and thought, between gods and men, that's always been that's always being fought. Even right now, it, I said at the beginning of the conversation that people who want to who will die for Moloch or Mammon. Right. To speak with Rilke again, we are captured by the vibration of money, the market. What is the market doing? Mm -hmm. um, and those are gods. They're very good gods, but they are. And the hope is, of course, that this will birth a new garden, <laughs> to reference you again. But we don't know yet. I, I just see the self-certainty of subjectivity collapsing which which could be could lead dialectically to a reinforcement mm -hmm. um of these systems and structures that it's given rise to or it could be in its death throes and not not to be resurrected so, yeah yeah and that it's important to remember that there's um <laughs> it's that it's always been the end of times and we've and there's continually been um you know these um harbingers of armageddon and doomsayers just you know threatened um weren't trying to warn you know people very dramatically about um very 
decisive turns of events. But while there's that continually, there's it's such a very particular or specific juncture considering it being an age of nihilism, right? But that like this confrontation in everybody's solitudes with meaningless, with you know, death knocking at the door, and all of, all that that leads them to reflect upon on their own life, then is uh, it seems uh, it seems unique, but it couldn't be, you know, because you know when it might. I mean. Or, or it is, I should say it isn't because in there might, you know, you could take any sack of a city when, you know, then people had to confront, you know, these things or, or what have you. Um, they, though, the difference, okay, the difference is then the um, values that they upheld and the, that the gods that they prayed to uh, were some solace. And that's like the, the critical distinction for this as in the age of nihilism because when you're com confronting meaningless death now that's a whole nother another story and in and um addressing yeah. you know the uh <laughs> the state of health or illness for such a um monetary fiscal deity as the as this you know the market Oh, well, Lord, like, I hope there's you've got something else to pray to. <laughs> um, because it, it's, to me, not a matter of resurrecting any, um, anything that came and went, but a breathing life into something that never left because it's always been kind of a, a part of us. Um, and it's and that can start to um, sound as though it starts to romanticize myths, but it's more integral to our our maturation from a a particular habitat. So what is what is uh, what makes us healthy and strong? You know, a thousand years ago, will continue to make in in different ways. It'll start to start to take different form, but it'll continue to make us healthy and strong in a thousand years in the future, so long as yeah. um, we take care for the the new forms of, of peril that we face. Yeah. Paul. Hmm. John, thank you very much. We'll continue yeah. this. We'll continue this. We'll have more uh, to discuss next time, whenever you fancy, as the critics say. And uh, keep well. You too, my friend. <laughs>